There are few individuals from the pages of the Old Testament that carry as much recognition as Moses. From burning bushes to parting seas, accounts from the life of Moses are known far and wide. These epic stories paint a picture of an extraordinary life of both mortal struggles and grand miracles. Yet as we peel back the layers of the life of Moses, we come to see even more. Through a lifetime recorded in vivid detail, Moses, the deliverer of the Israelites, has become a representation of Jesus Christ, the great and eternal deliverer of us all. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I have felt protected uh, uh, many a times in my life uh, by my Savior. I was a missionary. I was in France and we were on bikes. And the first bike I had was not as good a bike as it should have been. And I was going down a hill and the brakes went out. One time where there was a, a shark closing in on me and all of a sudden, with very hard praying, uh, out of nowhere a dolphin came in and, and hit the shark in the gills and dropped the shark and I was able to leave. Somehow I ended up on the side of the road, um, completely unscathed and I just picked myself up. I definitely felt like uh, I had angels ar around me and, and that my uh, Savior and God have uh, protected me. I know that my, it was at the very beginning of my mission and I was, my life was saved so I could serve. I'm grateful for that. Welcome everybody to the show. Today's topic discussions come from our studies of Exodus chapters one through six. And the first topic is who was Moses? And the second topic is, Jesus is my deliverer. And to help us with our discussion, we want to welcome back one of our scholars, James Goldberg. Welcome, James. Good to be back. And seated next to James, we have our special guest, Jennifer Lane. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, happy to be here. Jennifer is a research associate at the Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU Provo. She's also a professor emerita at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. So let's get into our first topic, which is who was Moses? It's really interesting to me that in about two verses in Exodus, we skip 400 years, <laughs> right? We were talking about Joseph and Egypt was the answer. He was able to save his whole extended family from famine by getting to Egypt. The very thing that was the solution, getting to Egypt, becomes a problem. Okay. It tells us in verse eight, now there arose up a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph. And then the Egyptians' relationship with the Israelite changes. Suddenly the Israelites are not welcome guests and productive members of society. They're seen as this threat. There might be too many of them. What if they cited against us? And so the pharaohs begin to, to use them as slave labor and push them down into slavery. By the time Moses is born, the worship and the life is not going to be the one we were used to in Genesis, right? They're hanging on to little bits of memory. And the world that Moses is born into is a world of suffering and hard labor and slavery. So it's not like these Israelites that are in Egypt were raised with all these practices for years. They're having to relearn a lot of these things. Is that what you're saying? That, that's my sense, right? And yeah. I agree. I think that with the time, it's really we talk about a new dispensation opening up. It, it's been so long, and then the Lord is reaching out to his people again, but they they haven't maybe completely forgotten him, but 
They've been in Egypt a long time, and they're in very difficult circumstances. They remember him enough to know when they're desperate to pray for help. But the Lord's going to be a part of their life going forward in a way he hasn't been for a long time. So where does Moses come into the picture, and how does his role kind of take off? The pharaohs decide that, that just getting the Israelites to do this labor is not enough. They're also worried that they like the labor. They yeah. still want there to be a lot this of Israelites. This provides their lifestyle, right? Right. But they say if there's more women than men, if there were a war, they wouldn't be as much of a threat, right? Okay. And so Pharaoh starts trying in various ways to, to kill male children. First, he goes to the midwives and tells them to do it. They don't. And then there's the famous, he tells people, we're just going to throw the infants in the river. So Moses then is saved. He's raised in the household of Pharaoh. It's a daughter of Pharaoh who took him in. But if you've ever seen films of Moses, they're almost invariably wrong. They treat it like this big revelation later that like, wait, I'm an Israelite. I didn't know. No, his, his mom raised him. She was the wet nurse. He knew about that, right? There's no surprise that he is not an Egyptian. No surprise. So Moses all his life has lived in two worlds. He knows that he's part of this people of Israel. He's also been raised with privileges everybody else doesn't have and will get put in situations where he's got to choose between these two parts of himself. And that's one thing I think we can relate to, right? Where we have one way we could live our lives or one way we could identify and another set of commitments. And since you said that, I yeah. want to ask the audience, how do you handle living in these two different worlds while you're trying to stay focused and keep your covenants? Aiden, go ahead. So I had this like decision of, in school, like should I like hang out with friends more or should I just study for like the test that's coming up or assignments? Because one has advantages, the other has advantages. If I go with friends, I'll have more fun. But if I go to study, it won't be as fun, but I'll still get a good grade. So then I have a better education in the future. So that was just a very hard decision for me. It's like, like I want to have fun, but I also want to get a good grade. So I guess I'm just going to study. But it was just like a hard decision to me at the moment. Yeah. So what do you do in those situations? How do you come to the decision that you are going to make? I look at what is going to happen. Like if I study, get a better grade, then I have more opportunities in the future. But if I just hang out with friends, it'll just be more time with friends. Do you feel like the Holy Ghost gets involved in decisions like that? Yeah, because I do get distracted from like reading scriptures like, oh, a friend just texted me or <laughs> something. Oh, uh, I got an assignment to do and... Like sometimes the Holy Ghost is like, oh, scriptures, remember the scriptures. <laughs> That's neat. I'm glad you're able at such a young age to recognize those moments. It's important that we remember that as we talk about Moses, because this is something that is not just going to be a one and done. He's going to have to make this decision and then make it again and then continue to make those difficult choices and learn how to listen to what the Lord is trying to teach him throughout his life. That idea of future implications is significant in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, it describes this day in his life, decisive day. And it says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, and he looked upon their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew one of his brethren. So he, he chose to go out. 
He chose to look at the burdens that, that he hadn't borne in the same way, but he still counted himself as one of these people. And this does show that he knew who he was. This is yes. also, because he, he, he calls them, these are my brethren. These are my brethren. Okay. And that's, that's knowledge and I think a choice, right? That instead of backing out, I'll count these as my brethren and I, I have to react to what they're going through. So in the next verse, he ends up killing the Egyptian who's, who's beating this servant. And that has huge implications, right? At first he hopes nobody yeah. found out. But he ended up having to give up everything that he had for his people. His willingness to step up and to defend a helpless person changed his entire life because he had the courage of his conviction. Do you think we always recognize those moments when we're about to make a decision? <laughs> the lasting impact, could you imagine? I mean, think about that. I would love to ask anyone have a, a specific example. Mackenzie, please. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest decisions I've made in my life was the decision to get married. And for us, we're a blended family. So that was a very big decision of, am I able to take on an immediate family? And it, of course, changed the you know course of my life. And I think one of the most amazing things is how blessed we've been from that. So we both managed to get through school despite having, now we have a family of five total. We were both able to pursue like different dreams and things and support each other through that. And it was hard, but it was like the prayer to make that decision, I knew it was going to change my life. And so I really wanted to be sure that this was the person I should marry. <laughs> and having that answer has helped us with the hard times because when you know that's the right choice, it like buoys you up when it's hard. What was that process like when you were trying to decide? Definitely one of those like, highlights of your life, right? Where you remember what the Spirit said. <laughs> it was a lot of prayer and fasting and um, rereading of my patriarchal blessing. And then the ultimate answer was a talk that basically said, you can take any fine priesthood holder and woman, and if they're dedicated to each other, they'll make a marriage work. The Lord said, if you commit to this, you can make anything work. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And, and look at how applicable their story is to Moses. I'm making my decision, and he's drawn that line in the sand saying, this is who, these are my people, this is who I am. Moses living up to what he had at that point, being true to his people, being willing to sacrifice himself for them. He could never go back, and so he only could go forward, and the Lord could see that he's someone he could trust to take on a new— And it's a good thing Moses was perfect, right? So. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. I wonder— if Moses went out to the wilderness thinking, I've done Egypt, I'm going to move in and make my life now with a new family. He gets, he gets married there, he settles down, and that might have been the end of his story, except for something that happens in verse 23. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. This is the one who exiled Moses. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. So Moses may not have been able to do anything. He may have felt like he was kind of done with this. But these people were in a desperate enough situation. They were calling out to their half-remembered God, please, please, we're trapped, help us. And the Lord, as he hears their prayer, this leads to a pretty significant event. We have a question from one of our viewers, and I'd love to get your response to it. Hi, my name is Lee Liston. So... God first appeared to Moses in a burning bush. My question is, has he ever appeared in that sort of way before? Did he do it later with other prophets? Was it just Moses? And why a burning bush? Does our faith offer any insight on that? 
Good this, question. This is a great question. And I think once we start to see a pattern, it makes a lot more sense. The presence of the Lord is associated with his glory, which is always associated with a brilliance and a brightness. In fact, the phrase, uh, a pillar of fire, shows up in many places. And we actually see this, the same pattern of a pillar of fire with the Lord appearing with Lehi in First Nephi chapter 6. We see the same thing actually in the first vision. We are used to the version where it's a pillar of light, but the 1835 version uses, Joseph uses the term a pillar of fire. And he says there even the trees seem to be on fire in the grove, right? So it's, so, it's so a, Joseph pattern. was trees, yeah. this is a bush. Yeah. So yeah. is it a lot of just the whatever is around the area where he appears. And, then, and that's what Joseph commented on, is that it as wasn't consumed. And so it's this tree that the light would say, okay, it's burning, it's being consumed, it's gonna to turn to ash. But that the brightness and glory of God is as though it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And okay. that's a and, pattern. And for Moses, that's a strange sight that draws him in, right? What he feels drawn yeah. toward this light. I do think that the recurring image of fire is important. One really interesting description of the power of the Holy Ghost and what it feels like comes from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20 verse 9, where we're theorizing Moses might feel like he's done before this. Jeremiah definitely felt like he was done. <laughs> so he's going to try quitting being a prophet. And he says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but... His word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. So Jeremiah felt this fire, fire in the bones, right? Right. So I think that, that fire imagery is something the apostles and felt that same thing. When we thing. talk about the baptism by water and the baptism of the Holy Ghost is baptism of fire. And so the, the association of the Holy Ghost, we experience the presence of the Lord. And so presence and fire go together over and over again. So I think once we start to see this pattern, we realize the Lord is appearing and this is, the glory is just radiant. And that's what Moses is seeing. So in this situation, we see the Lord is appearing to Moses. How has the Lord shown himself to you throughout your life? Layla. I think he has really helped me with um, some of my hardest trials. When I was struggling with my mental health, I really felt the, Holy Ghost with me, and I really knew there was a Heavenly Father who was helping me. Thank you, and, and I like how you said that through the Holy Ghost, which oftentimes is described as we can, you know, as a burning, that warm feeling, and so through the Holy Ghost, He's made Himself manifest to you. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. This has been a great topic. Uh, I do want to give each of you one sentence to answer the question of the topic: Who was Moses? Moses was someone whose life and choices prepared him to serve God and deliver the people. Thank you. Moses was someone who used his agency and kept making choices when he could have done other things, but he kept using his choices to live up to the light he had. And because of that, the Lord could give him more light and could appear to him in a pillar of fire. Great way to wrap up this first topic of discussion of who was Moses. I think that the Old Testament is like the bread and butter of the gospel. I mean, it, there are so many symbols and types and shadows that all point towards Jesus Christ. Those symbolisms also, uh, you know, if looked at, can be related to something today. I think it actually helps me 
recognize Christ in my own life uh, with all the symbols and things that go on in, in my day as well as in the Old Testament. Their circumstances were way different back then, but because of the symbolism, you can actually relate it for today's circumstances. The second topic we're going to discuss is Jesus is my deliverer. And we see a lot of connection with Moses delivering the children of Israel, a lot of similarities with Jesus. But as we focus on Moses, there were a lot of people that played a part in his deliverance. We talked about a little bit before the role of the women in delivering Moses. You want to give us a little more insight on that? Sure. There's this charge that goes from the Pharaoh to the Hebrew midwives. And we get the names of them, which is amazing here. So we have Shipra and Pua. And two of these these women who are helping other women give birth, he tells them, if you see when this baby is coming that it's a son, that's it. Their life mission is to bring life into the world, and he's asking them to be murderers. For any human being, I think, this would be sobering. But we actually get a really interesting clue here in verse 17. So they fear God, and they did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive because of this moral higher law, they are not going to do what they're being asked to do. And Aaron, Moses' brother, is going to become important later in the, uh, the story. He never needs to be put in an ark because of Shipra and Pua. So they saved him before then Pharaoh says, well, there's too many men surviving, I need to do something else, right? Moses' mother, in chapter 6 we get her name, Jochebed. Here it just talks about a about a mother, and it says in chapter 2, verse 2, and the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and pitch and put the child therein and laid it in the flags by the river's banks. Jochebed has the courage to bring a child into the world and then hides and shelters him. When we think about what it means to deliver someone, there's a lot of imagery through the whole Old Testament about God sheltering and protecting us the same way that we see Jochebed enacting here. And I think the family relationships are powerful. And we see in verse 4 where the next woman who is part of Moses' life and part of his deliverance and being preserved is his sister. And we know, again, from later, this is Miriam. And so his sister Miriam is watching what's happening, is watching little baby Moses in this makeshift ark <laughs> that he's being sent down the river, but she's watching over. And I think, again, this image of, of how the Lord interacts in our lives, that he, he is aware of us and he's keeping an eye. She must have gone down the river because she's there when he's being picked up. I think of the image of God gathering his people like a mother hen gathers mm -hmm. her chickens, and Miriam's doing that here, right? She's not just letting him go and, and praying and hoping. She's following up and then gathering in mm -hmm. and, and bringing back to the people. And so that, again, yeah. is telling us something about what it means to deliver it and the kind of detailed care that, that God provides to us when he delivers us, and that we can provide when we participate in his work of deliverance. Well, what I think is interesting about this next part of deliverance is that now we have an Egyptian mm -hmm. who is participating in the deliverance of Moses. Yeah, in verse 6, we hear about Pharaoh's daughter, and everyone else, you can say there's, there's selflessness, and they're going out on a limb, and they're taking big risks. Mm -hmm. But it's also their people and their relatives, mm -hmm. right? And, and here's someone 
who doesn't necessarily have a family or national stake, and yet she sees the ark, she sends a maid to fetch it, and then verse six, it says, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept, and she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And basically, this woman, knowing that this is a Hebrew child, uses her privilege to take him under her wing and give him that protection. An attribute of deliverance is compassion. God's compassion on us is fundamental to that salvation. And when we feel compassion on other people, it really is, what is the pure love of Christ? When anybody's feeling compassion, we're feeling the love that God has because he has so much compassion on all of us in our weakness, our frailty, our danger that he knows us, he's aware of us. And so when we feel compassion, I think he's letting us feel a little bit of what he feels for us. How have you felt that compassion? Yeah, this has been, I, I think of in my life, and this is where I think family relationships become part of it. My mother had some long-term health issues and she fell and my husband and I were living in Utah and had this feeling, you need to go, you need to, you need to move, you need to go now. You need to go live with them because she needs someone in her home to be with her. And I think it was more than me. It was the Lord was watching out for my mother, but he was helping me feel the love that he had for her that was strong enough. So we put everything in our little U-Haul and drove down the freeway and lived with my mom and dad for six months because just that feeling, you need to be there. You need to do this. And I think the Lord helps us when we respond to those feelings. He makes us instruments in his hands most powerful feelings that I had right before we moved back was just this feeling, I think, of his love. Thank you for being on my errand. Thank you for being there for your mom. And of course, I mean, she's done everything for me, but, but it's still, it's, it's easy to harden our hearts. It's easy to say, this is my life, I'm busy, to not hear the pleadings and the groanings of others around us. And I think to become more like our Heavenly Father, become more like our Savior is, to, to feel that compassion and to be willing to act and to be willing to do things to help people. And I love how you pointed it back to the Savior, how, yes, you were being used as a tool to help in this process, recognizing that this is an opportunity for him yeah. to show how much he loves your mom. And you, we, I think we see the same thing here, where the Lord is, is using these amazing women to show, yes, they are amazing in what they're doing, but let's, let's not forget that who is behind all of this. Yeah, and these are, I guess in literature, we call it foreshadowing, right? <laughs> that as someone is hearing the story, if you, if you think of the Israelites hearing, this is where you come from. Watch this happen, watch this happen. You can be a Miriam. And God takes on that role for the whole people, right? That, yeah. That's when he's sending Moses back. He's doing these things that you've seen. Because when there's nobody, there's always still the Lord to step in and be that, that sister, that brother to deliver you. Thank you both for sharing that. I love that. I, I want to hear from the audience. When have you seen the Lord use you to help deliver somebody from a situation? Francois. Yes, I have a friend that he's from Haiti. So he ended up drifting away, left the church. And what we always been friends and uh, always help him and uh, work on his car and share my testimony with him and stuff. Recently, he came back to church and he called me. He said, you, you probably don't realize that, but the Lord has used you to help me to come back to church. Now I'm a temple worker and I didn't realize that the Lord used me to 
help him back to church. Do you think that's that helps you to be more mindful of those promptings that the Lord is trying to give you along the way? Because you never know, right? Yeah, that's how God operates, you know, to use other other people, even they may not even be a member of the church, and to serve his uh, people and his children. So how can we, and how do we, maybe how do you specifically know when you are kind of being nudged, like, hey, you know, share your testimony with this guy, go help him with his car. Have you learned through this process on how to better recognize those feelings? A little bit, yes, a little bit, because sometimes I feel promptings to call him during our conversation and I feel prompted to say something and then it's usually um, really useful to him. And uh, yeah, so that's an eye opener for me to be more mindful and how the Lord using me as his instrument to help other people. So that's yeah. great. What a great example. Your whole family. I just, I love you guys. Thank <laughs> you so much for sharing that. There's something we don't appreciate in, um, in reading English is that the word that's translated redeemer. So we know that the Lord is the redeemer of Israel, but the Hebrew term goel is actually better translated kinsman redeemer. People in the ancient world could be either sell themselves or be captured and go into slavery. And so a, a kinsman redeemer would be the oldest male relative within an extended family who would have the responsibility to go and buy people back out of bondage. And so when the Lord refers to himself and is referred to as the goel or the kinsman redeemer of Israel, part of what's happening is when we make covenants with the Lord, like we see here, he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob created a family relationship so that covenants aren't contracts. Covenants aren't part of the world of commerce. Covenants are family. We all know Mosiah chapter 5 where King Benjamin says, because of the covenant you, you've made, you're the children of Christ. Well, that's what happened with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They became the children of Christ through their covenant relationship. So Christ became the redeemer of Israel because of the family relationship that was created with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he remembered that. They were his covenant family. And I think this is one of the beautiful things about the gospel. When we are sharing the gospel, inviting people to come and make covenants, we're inviting them to become the children of Christ and to allow the Lord to be their redeemer. He wants to redeem everybody, but we opt in. We choose to be part of his covenant family, allowing him to redeem us. I love how you, that, I, my, my mind just were like, whoa. <laughs> cause well, cause when we think about covenant, we think of, oh, it's a contract. Like yeah. I, I didn't make a contract with my wife. Like, okay, now we're gonna be best friends and, <laughs> and eternal companions because you sign here and I sign here. I love that connection. So can you just tell me, how does your understanding of that covenant is family, how does that affect your covenant relationships? For me, it makes all the difference because again, understanding that at baptism and then in the temple, that binding myself to the Lord, but he's binding himself to me. And so that we're connected and related and I can rely on him just like a mother will watch out for her children and as a child, I want to watch out for my mother. That feeling of connection is so powerful. And we know that we're all spirit children of, and beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, but taking Christ as our covenant parent, we use our agency to do that. And so I think when we realize that our covenants, we've chosen Christ, we've chosen the Lord Jehovah 
to be our covenant father, to be our kinsman redeemer. Because of the covenant we made, we know that he will be there for us. And I think sometimes it can be easy for people to feel like I'm not worth helping, mm. right? Like we want to be worthy to do, to do God's work and sometimes we need to, to be at a certain level to do certain assignments, right? But when it comes to qualifying for the Lord's help, this idea of a goel, right? A, a kinsman redeemer, uh, he's not signed up for the easy times, right? Right. right. Like, like that role exists because there's a recognition that in a family, people are gonna get into trouble, yeah. right? They're, they're gonna get into situations from their own decisions or from circumstances outside of their control where they're stuck in the mud, where they're, where they're in a negative relationship yeah. somewhere else and somebody needs to come get them. And that's what Christ said he would be for us, right? That's, that's the basic understanding. If, if we deserved it, it would not be mercy, right? <laughs> if we were doing everything right, we wouldn't need a redeemer. The whole title of, of a redeemer is built around the fact that we'll need to be redeemed. And so often we do sell ourselves into bondage. It happened in the ancient world, it was this debt slavery, but I think from a practical point of view, the choices we make so often, and sometimes it's because of other people's evil, wicked choices, but so often we make choices and we end up, we think, well, I deserve this, and maybe we do deserve it, but again, he's there for us. That it doesn't matter how we got into bondage, it doesn't matter why we're in that terrible situation, he is there to bring us back, to buy us out of bondage. And that theme runs through the Old Testament, it runs through the Book of Mormon, even in the New Testament, Peter teaches, you haven't been purchased by gold or silver, but by the blood of the lamb. He bought us with his own blood so that we know how valuable you are. How valuable are you? You're so valuable that Christ was willing to, to pay the price of suffering and dying to bring you back home again. It doesn't matter how we got lost, that he, he's there to bring us back and he has and will always be there for us allows me to live with a, a peace that he wants us to have, a peace in Christ, is knowing we can trust him. And that that's what faith is. It's knowing we can trust Christ. He's never going to abandon us. Because he is our deliverer. He is. Thank you very much for your comments. I'm excited to get more into these chapters in our footnotes section, but that'll wrap up this portion of the episode. Thank you. The Holy Ghost spoke to me today um, in reminding me to have an open heart and to listen to what everyone has to say because I really learned a lot of things from everyone else. And so being reminded to listen to other perspectives really helped me to learn today. I think the best part about Come Follow Me with family studying is that it provides an outline. And so instead of us just mindlessly reading the scriptures, we're able to engage with them, ask questions, and actually have um, a feedback on like where we should go. So we know what we're studying and we know why we're studying it, which is so important. Yeah, and he's also increased our capacity to, you know, to think before we go to class and also to bring insights and, and comments and participation uh, during the lessons. Welcome to the footnotes portion of our episode. We also want to welcome an additional guest, Jeff Bednar, who is an associate professor of organizational behavior at BYU's Marriott School of Business. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, Jeff, you have some specific knowledge and, and insight to share with us specifically about these chapters. 
I just want to turn the time over to you for a little bit and just tell us what you have to share about these chapters that we're talking about in Exodus. As context uh, from the scriptural point of view, in Exodus chapter 3, um, we begin to see Moses uh, receiving a call from the Lord uh, as uh, the deliverer of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And as Moses responds to the Lord, he says, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? We see in these chapters how Moses really struggles to have the confidence to fulfill the assignment that the Lord has asked him to do. And one of the things that I study in my professional life is a phenomenon called the imposter syndrome. It's not a designated psychological syndrome, um, but it's a, a phenomenon that refers to people who really struggle to gain confidence in themselves. And one of the reasons that they struggle to gain confidence in themselves is because there's a breakdown between the results of their actions and their self-efficacy or their self-confidence. And so even though they experience success, they have a really hard time believing it was because of themselves. They have a hard time detaching it from luck or chance or uh, someone else being responsible. Can you give us like a, a real world example so we can kind of make the connection? Sure. The, the first example would be uh, someone named Sarah. And Sarah was a top performer in her organization, but really struggled with these deep-seated feelings of being an imposter. And over time, she actually left the organization despite being a top performer because she was never able to gain confidence in herself uh, as, as a leader in this organization. Another example would be me personally. I really struggled myself with a sense of imposter syndrome when I was in graduate school and always thought it was only a matter of time before one of the faculty uh, in my PhD program or other students were gonna find out. I slipped through the cracks and somehow got into this amazing PhD program despite not actually deserving to be there. So those are some of the types of feelings and experiences that people have who struggle with imposter syndrome. They feel fraudulent, like it's only a matter of time before someone is gonna find out that they don't actually belong here. As a writer, I feel like most of my friends and I <laughs> have all passed through this, yeah. right? The, the tricky thing is that sometimes when there's, there's high stakes or high expectation stuff, like you're gonna screw up, and so then you're like, yes, this is what I was thinking. And sometimes things go really well and you don't trust it, right? I don't know, I feel like it's a cycle that gets fed both sides. No matter what happens, it just makes you more worried. Yeah, Maya Angelou, who's one of the you know, yeah. prolific writers, uh, she says, to paraphrase, you know, I've written 11 books, but every time I publish a new book, I think it's only a matter of time before they find out that I'm a fake or a fraud. And so even really successful people can struggle significantly with these feelings of inadequacy and imposterism. So relating that back to Moses, where do you see this imposter syndrome manifest itself with him and his situation? You can just look at Moses's self-doubt. He looks at his weaknesses, like his slow speech, and has a hard time believing that he personally would be capable of doing something so important and significant as leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. He views Pharaoh as this larger than life, uh, dangerous, difficult figure, and he probably was, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you can see that Moses, in comparing himself to Pharaoh, often says, who am I to go to the Pharaoh? Who am I to go to the king? And, uh, and then in his relationship with God, the Lord tries to reassure Moses multiple times throughout these chapters, but he has a hard time believing that the Lord can help him become 
what the Lord is seeing his future uh, that he can become. And so from the view that he has of himself, from the view that he has of other people, and in the, the view that he portrays of his relationship to God, he, he's really having a hard time developing the self-confidence that he needs to accept this call as the Lord's prophet. So as you're talking with people and helping them overcome these issues, how do you help somebody work through the process of getting over or managing imposter syndrome? And do we see any sort of parallels with Moses's process? I was sitting at lunch one day with a, a friend of mine, and he said, I'm thinking about doing uh, some research about something called the imposter syndrome. Have you heard of this? And I thought, no, I've never heard of this. And I went back and I started to look at journal articles and, and other things in preparation for considering doing this research study. And my life started to make sense. And the last five years in my PhD program started to make total sense. As I learned that this is a real thing and it has a name and other people experience, there was something about the normalcy of that that was really, really helpful for me. Another thing that we often say that I think is horrible advice is fake it until you make it. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening because I, I use that phrase too, <laughs> far too often, so I want to learn why not. Well, I think the notion of telling someone to fake it simply exacerbates the message that you're a fake, right? Oh, okay. You, you, you don't belong here and you're having to fake it. And so uh, I often encourage people to, to use a phrase like, practice until you become it. You can see the Lord trying to get Moses to act. Go, 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 go do this, go do this, go do this. And if you can just take that step and go and practice and have that mindset that if I do this, someday I can become it, uh, I think that's much more healthy than the fake it till you make it advice. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make that change in my my vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, practice until you become it. Yeah, and then I think the last thing that we've learned through our research is the importance of who you turn to for help. If people turn to individuals in the context where they're feeling very insecure, it often makes things worse. Especially if it's someone that is either a person you compare yourself to or someone that has a role in evaluating your performance. But if you can find someone that's outside of the context where you're feeling like an imposter, but they understand your immediate context. And those are the types of people who can help you realize you're capable, you're competent, and you can do this. Who was it that helped you through this, through your own process of an imposter syndrome? For me, it was really important to, to have someone that really understood what I was going through. And so I have a brother who went through a PhD program like I did. My dad was also really helpful. He has a, a PhD and was a university professor. Talking to him always fills me with faith because he has unshaken faith in me, uh, has a real belief in my capacity, and uh, is able to help me think about myself and others in appropriate ways and remind me of the relationship that I have to God. Now, for somebody that may not know, um, they can probably make a connection with the last name Bednar. <laughs> uh, your father is Elder Bednar. That's right. He was an apostle. Do you think he felt these similar feelings and how was he able to use that to help you? When I think of my dad, he is full of faith and he always has been and it's a very rare occasion that I've ever seen my dad just concerned about anything. Uh, you know, he experiences stress, but he just seems to have the superhuman ability to have faith no matter what comes his way. The only time that I've ever seen him shaken is the night after he was announced as a member uh, of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And he had learned about this call on Friday, was announced 
on Saturday and then had to give his first general conference talk Sunday morning. And uh, so you can imagine the pressure he was feeling. (laughs) President Hinckley announced that he had been called to fill one of the vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve. We didn't know. We found out with the rest of the church. And my two brothers were watching from where they were living, and they immediately booked flights, were able to be in Salt Lake City that evening so that we could be together as a family and then support my dad as he gave his first general conference talk that next morning. The night before that talk, you could tell the weight of his calling was just heavy on his shoulders. And I remember my brothers and I asked if uh, we could give him a blessing. Sorry, I'm I'm not a graceful crier and uh, apologize for that. But uh, it was a really special experience to be his son and join with my two brothers and be able to pronounce that blessing on him uh, in preparation for what he was going to have to do that next day. And as he stood up uh, in general conference, if you go back and read that message, it's actually really interesting to, in, in the context of these verses from Exodus uh, because he references how weak and wobbly his knees feel and uh, how inadequate and weak he is. But one of the things that he testifies of in that talk is that through the strength of the Lord, you can be magnified to do anything. And he suggests that that invitation is for everyone. Uh, All members of the church have access to that power that the atonement of Christ brings into our life. Thank you for sharing. That's great insight that, you know, a lot of times as members of the church, we don't get. And so for you to share something so personal, it really does help add to, you know, what we're talking about. And whether you're being called as an apostle or you're being called, you know, as, as a primary teacher, that weight, when you understand the responsibility, it does take a toll on us, you know, as we're doing this this great work. Uh, Jennifer, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on this as well as you study these these chapters. Well, thinking about these experiences, I go back to this the relationship between verse 11 and verse 12 because that question, who am I, that, that so often comes to us. And the answer that the Lord gives back doesn't answer the question. He doesn't talk to Moses about Moses. He gives a promise where he says, I will be with thee. And I think the difference with being faithful is, is, is trusting that. Mm-hmm. When you really, really believe that, then you realize it's not about me. Even though it took Moses a while to, to let it sink in, that the choice to be faithful is really the choice to trust that this is real and that the Lord will keep his promise and that he has power, that he wants to help us and that he can help us and that we can rely on him and that it can help us get past the trap of getting locked into who am I, which is we can never get out of that if that's where we stay, if we choose to stay with that question. But when we move from verse 11 to verse 12 and we really focus on the answer, I know from my own experience, that's where the peace comes, knowing the Lord will do what he's promised he he said he would do. I think it's interesting in verse 12, that first the Lord says, I will be with thee. And then he says, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. In other words, there's the promise that God will be with him, and there's a really clear goal of this is what we're working toward. And I think one thing that's been helpful for me is when I'm wondering how I am doing, it's easier to sink. When I remember, I really care about this work, right? Mm. This this thing I'm working on, I feel like it matters. When you're moving, it's... it's, It's easier not to get stuck right. in that. Say it, it, this has to happen. This, we have to get them out of here. They need to be 
connected to God again, because serving God in this mountain, that's, that's temple worship. They, this needs to happen. They need to have that relationship with God. And so he can forget himself and go to work. Um, so Jennifer mentioned uh, how through Moses was given this vision of this is something that is bigger than just you. As you try to help people work through this imposter syndrome, does it ever come up the idea of having them focus on, look, there's a bigger picture to look at, and it's not just about you and your inadequacies. There's a lot of different things yeah. going on. Yeah, it's interesting um, because I feel like imposter syndrome is incredibly self-focused. Mm. Uh, you're so worried about yourself and how you're being perceived and how other people are looking at you. I love the phrase from President Hinckley when he was a missionary that his dad <laughs> responded to his complaints and he just said, forget yourself and go to work. And I think there's so much wisdom in that. If, if we can start to forget about ourselves and quit focusing on the weaknesses that we have and the inadequacies that we have, and if we can just go to work. And as I think about my dad, that's something that he has exemplified throughout his life. He didn't feel adequate to be an apostle. Uh, he looked around the room in his first quorum meeting and saw these brethren that he had admired his entire life and strived to learn and follow their teachings. And, and he often would joke about the Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other, <laughs> right? Um, I, I've had occasion to... Um, kind of interact with other members of the 12 and when they ask what I do or what I study, I'll tell them I study imposter syndrome and, and they'll say, I know a thing or two about that. <laughs> none, none of them feel adequate. None of them feel um, like they're completely uh, up to the challenge, but they all have such faith in the promises that the Lord is trying to teach Moses in, in Exodus that go and I will be with you. Go and I will fill your mouth. I think it is interesting when you talk about um, the Lord's promise to fill his mouth, mm -hmm. right? That, that Moses raised this concern about I'm slow of speech and God kind of says, okay, check, got it taken care of. I can, I can give you words. And Moses goes, no, really. <laughs> Send whoever you want. Can you think of anybody else? And then you talked earlier about having that voice and a human external support as well as an internal yeah. voice. And... And God then says to, ah, go to your brother Aaron, Yeah. right? And it's not just that Aaron can speak. We'll see Moses speak plenty, mm -hmm. right? But, but I think there's something to having that external support system. It, it's okay when we can't always get past that hump of self-doubt on our, on our own. Yeah, we need sure. each other. Do you think there was a moment where in your personal journey, you kind of, came to that realization of, I, I can do this. When my wife was pregnant with our third son, we found out that there may be some health complications involved. I remember coming home from the hospital and I went into a room in my apartment in Michigan and I just knelt down at my bedside and I pleaded with the Lord, Lord, help my son, heal my son. And I'll never forget the prompting that came to my mind the prompting was, Jeff, he is my son too. And at that moment, I knew that this was going to be hard. I knew that it was going to be overwhelming at times. But when I was reminded of my relationship to God and my son's relationship to him, 
I was filled with comfort. I was filled with power to know that come what may, my wife and I will be able to do this. And that's not to say there haven't been moments where it's been extremely difficult or I've doubted or struggled, um, but I have learned so much from the experiences we've had uh, from our son that has some, some health challenges. It's a great example, thank you. I was kind of curious from, from some of your thinking and research, when you're in that position like the children of Israel of, of supporting someone, what can you do to help somebody else find that strength and reach their potential without adding to the sense of crushing expectation? If we think about those three things, my view of myself, my view of other people, and my relationship to God, the first is helping people to see a true view of themselves, reminding them of their strengths and their capacities, not just now, but what they have the potential to become. I think helping people have a healthy perspective of other people and not over or aggrandize people's gifts or talents uh, or compare. Comparison is deeply rooted and tied to imposterism. And so if you can help people to change their reference groups and, and understand uh, how their reference groups have become skewed or problematic. Uh, and then I think uh, just reminding them of the power of God in their life and their relationship to Him and the access that they have to that power, I think those are three levers that we can use as we're supporting other people. I also think for me, one thing I've learned is the power of vulnerability. We all walk around and see other people, and this relates to this idea of creating a healthy view of other people, but we haven't walked in their shoes, we haven't seen their struggles, and so we have this outward view of them that is often inaccurate and we, we don't understand their weaknesses and their challenges. And so one of the things that I often try to help people and organizations do is, is try to create cultures of vulnerability to open up about not just success, but failure and share weakness. That's really hard in business environments, right? We're, that's kind of the antithesis of corporate culture. But if we can do that in families and in organizations, uh, I think that can be one really helpful thing. I think it is helpful you know, to, to hear and understand, and even you just talking about your dad in certain situations, like that's, this is going to sound, but that's kind of comforting to know. That, <laughs> no, you know exactly. It's like, you know, because we, we do have these, these feelings. And so I love that approach of, you know, really uh, cultivating that kind of an environment. It really does, I think, help us work through our own little processes. This whole conversation is giving me, it's, it's helping answer a question I've had about this story with Moses because it always seems strange to me that Moses comes and does things like turning water to blood and Pharaoh brings in his magicians to do the same thing. And I thought, how does it help to have more water turned to blood, right? Like Pharaoh, this is not solving a problem, right? And yet that competition, right, can be a way to undercut Moses. And, and so Pharaoh, by putting Moses in comparison with others, can try to attempt to say to Moses, you're not that big a deal. You're not important to me. I, look, I can order this. Who are you? You're an imposter, right? But then I think if we can turn around on that and say, okay, we're sharing vulnerability and, and there's struggles and those sorts of things, but, but we're persistent, that gives us strength. And you'd asked about the culture of the church. I think we live in a larger culture where a lot of people are gonna say, are you sure you want to do this religious discipleship thing? That seems kind of intense. And, and aren't you hypocritical if you're doing that? That's a stereotype about religion. Because right, you're not perfect. And so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. 
And that's going to play right to an imposter syndrome of discipleship, right? Is it even possible to be an authentically religious person? And so the more we as a culture can say part of discipleship is imperfection, I think that's a protection against like that, that pharaoh yeah. technique. And we're, that we're practicing. And that's the very point of discipleship is we're practicing until we become. And so we, the, the Doctrine and Covenants talks about practicing holiness. The discipleship, the word in Greek can also be translated apprentice. It's like when you're starting an apprenticeship, you're not going to be able to do what the master does. And so I think recognizing that can, we can all like lower expectations for ourselves and other people because we're all practicing and that we don't have to be there yet. And that doesn't make us hypocrites. It just means that we're in the process. But to feel the Lord's love is to feel that we have potential and that we can keep making progress and we can keep learning together. And I think that can allow ourselves to recognize we don't have to have arrived yet. And, we don't, and, and also to, to let other people off the hook as well. That to feel loved and belonging because we're all in the journey together. Thank you. Jeff. Yeah, as I've been sitting here thinking, uh, I, I love how you brought it back to Christ uh, and Moses as a similitude of the Savior. And as I think about imposter syndrome, I just think Christ is the answer, right? Uh, Christ uh, helps us to become who we ultimately can become. And through his power, if we have faith and trust in that power, he can do mighty miracles with us, uh, and through us. And I think about Moses and you take this outcast who ultimately does lead the children of Israel uh, out of bondage and uh, plays such a significant role in the history of the gospel uh, and the history of the world. And uh, he was slow of speech and, and uh, the Lord magnified him to do amazing things. So I just think for me, as I've been uh, sitting here thinking about this conversation, uh, it's it's just strengthened my testimony of Jesus Christ and the power that he has to strengthen and uh, work in our lives in magnificent ways. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thanks for being here and sharing your insights. It's been, I think you've started something with this <laughs> practice until you become. Uh, I'm going to adopt that in my life. And, and I, I think for all of us, we just want to thank you for, for being here. Jennifer, James, pleasure to have you. For those watching at home, thank you again for being with us for another episode. And we want to remind you that if you have felt moved in any way uh, watching this show today, that you will take the courage and that you'll act upon those feelings. Thanks again. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.